right. At this time, I want to encourage you to open up to the book of James, chapter 2. I wasn't going to read through it at the beginning because it's a longer passage, but there's so much to it, and I want you to have it in your mind as we go through it a little bit more slowly. So open it up. Have it in front of you. Um, If you have a pew Bible that you've taken out, I believe you're going to be on the same page as I am here. It's on page 847. And as you're opening that up, let me open us up in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank and praise you that you are with us always and that you come to us through your word. As we open up the book of James, we're mindful that he is echoing the truths that he learned from his own brother, you, Jesus. And we pray that you would give us these truths, God, that we would understand the way in which they are to convict us and to call us to become more like you and faithful to following your ways when we leave than when we came. Only you can do that work in us, and so we pray that you do that work. And I pray, God, that my words would not be my own, but that they would illuminate the truth that you have for all of us this morning. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. My brothers and sisters... Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into courts? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you keep Really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. I want to ask you to, you could just yell it out, um, how many decisions do you think the average person makes on any given day? Just yell it out. If you're online, drop it in the comments. How many decisions? Just throw it out there. 20, 100, 200, 10,000. I had one... I had one guy, was there 10,000? Is that what I heard, 10,000? That's actually the closest one. I had one guy in the last service, he said four. 
And his wife told me, yes, it's about four. He's a very, he's, he's a very simple, simple man. Now, I read, <laughs> I, I read a couple of articles, and they cited some research. I'm not sure how much I believe this. They suggested that the average person makes 35,000 decisions each and every day. And that sounds a little high, but if you start to add it up, you realize that no matter what the number is, it's a lot. Like from the moment that you open your eyes, you're making choices. Like how many times am I going to hit the snooze button? What am I going to wear? How am I going to do my hair? Like this doesn't just happen, right? Like I've got to really think about, am I going to wear it up? Am I going to wear it down? You know, the other day, I'm, I'm a slow learner. I, I, I realized recently so I would be, like, selective in the shower of what conditioner I wear or use, and I'm like, why? <laughs> it's, it's not working. But see, decisions, these are still decisions that we're making. Uh, what am I going to eat for breakfast? If I have a bowl of cereal, am I going to eat one bowl? Am I going to have two bowls? It's getting cold outside. Should I warm up the car? Should I wear a jacket? And, and you could just go on and on. That's just the first hour of anybody's day, and those are just just your conscious decisions what about all the decisions that you're making that are somewhat unconscious like should I scratch that itch should I hold back that sneeze how can I maneuver my tongue to get that piece of lettuce out from between my teeth right like these are things that are just kind of happening going on in the background at any different any at any given time and so if it's not 35,000 it's absolutely a lot we make more decisions every minute of every day than we realize and so this, this kind of took me down a rabbit trail this week, so forgive me. Our brains are really impressive because we've learned ways in which to be efficient with all of the decisions that we make. You couldn't possibly make all of them consciously. And so our brains develop these cognitive shortcuts. There's a term for it. It's called heuristics. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that term before. Uh, one of them that's an example that we'll all be able to relate to is something called an anchoring bias. And here's how an anchoring bias works. What it means is that when you're making a decision and you're having to judge based on a number of different options, your brain will automatically pick a single option as the anchoring bias by which to judge everything else. And the example that I read was very familiar to many of us, and that is in purchasing a house. And so if you're working with a realtor and you're in a new neighborhood and that realtor tells you that the average price of a house in this neighborhood is $300,000 and now you go out and you start to look at houses, if you see a house that's caught, that the, the sticker price is $400,000, you're going to say, well, that's a little high. And if you see another house that's $200,000, you are going to say, wow, that's, that's a really good deal. And likewise, maybe you don't know the average price. You're just out looking. And if that's the case, then you're going to grab an anchoring bias from your own experience. It might be the last house you bought years ago in a completely different neighborhood, and you're going to judge the price of a new house based on what you spent on your last house. And this was real to me just a couple of weeks ago. I was in Iowa with a number of pastors for a conference, and one of them was telling me he just took a new call to a church just outside of Silicon Valley, California. And he told me how much it cost to buy a house. And I know some of you are very aware of the difference. It was literally four times as much as my house is worth 
in Wisconsin. Four times as much. And I was like, wow, you must have a really nice house. And he said, no, I actually have to drive 25 minutes away from the church in good traffic. It's one of the least expensive houses in my neighborhood. And it is nothing particularly significant. Same number of bedrooms and bathrooms as my house does here in rural Wisconsin. But see, the anchoring bias matters. Those of you that are laughing know that there's a whole different economy going on depending on where you live. And if I didn't know that and I went to California, nobody would take me seriously if I tried to buy a house in California at a good old Wisconsin price. I think I could buy a mailbox. I think that's about all I could afford. And so your brain has to be reprogrammed, right? You've got to see things from a new perspective, and that's exactly what you'll do. If you don't do that, you will frustrate everyone around you. You'll be frustrated yourself, and you probably wouldn't find a house for your family to live in. Well, take all of that in mind as we get into our reading today. Today is the third week in our series as we're going through the book of James. And James is written as a letter to various Hebrew Christians that are living in the midst of a secular world that is people trying to follow the way of Jesus in the midst of a bunch of people that are not. And what I mean by that is that the people that are reading this letter are attempting to do something that has literally never been done before, and that is that they are trying to be Christians. And that sounds really silly, right? Because we're 2,000 years into this, but this was the first generation church. Nobody had ever done it before. And as I read those verses, I don't know about you, I realized that 2,000 years later, I think we're still trying to figure it out probably just as much as they were trying to figure it out back then. And so first week, we talked about trials, right? We talked about suffering. The second week, last week, we all felt convicted because we talked about temptation, and now nobody wants to eat cookies. And I just want you to know that that's okay. And today, we're talking about judgment. Specifically, we're talking about favoritism. And we're talking about not just what we value, but we're talking about what is the anchoring bias that tells us what in the world is of value in the first place. Because just like suffering or just like temptation, we all judge. I told you last week to be tempted is not sinful, right? It leads to sin. We need to be aware of it. To suffer is not sinful. God is not smiting us. Suffering and temptation and judgment is all a part of the human experience. And I say that because so many of us are misled specifically about judgment because we've all quoted the Bible and it's actually Jesus' words when he says in the Gospel of Matthew, say it with me, do not judge. How many of you have always believed that's like a tenet to our Christian faith? Show of hands. It's a core tenet, right? Jesus said it. Do you see what comes after the word judge? It's a little thing called a comma. <laughs> and what that means is that there's more to the thought than just that. And so let's continue. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Don't you know just by your own experience that, that the people that are the hardest on other people are also those that are usually the hardest on themselves. 
And those of you that are nodding right now are probably the kind of people that are hard on yourselves, right? Like, we all know this from our own experience. And so I, I want you to hear as grace that James is not saying, Jesus is not saying not to judge because that would be impossible. You would not be able to walk throughout your day without judging everything around you. We all do it. Instead, Jesus came to change the way in which we judge. He came to change our perspective. He came to change our anchoring bias so that we might judge the world and judge other people and judge ourselves the way he does. And that's what James is challenging the church to do. And he's challenging them because apparently they have not been doing a very good job of doing this. And that brings us to our reading today in James chapter 2. So let me read the first verse again. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. At the very beginning of what he's about to teach, he reminds his readers, he reminds us that what should anchor everything, if you are a follower of Jesus, what should anchor everything we do, every decision we make, every judgment that we place, it should all be based on Jesus, on our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way in which we should begin. And the reason why is because he's about to challenge these people. And he's going to challenge them for doing something that if you were not a follower of Jesus, would be completely normal. <laughs> this wouldn't even make the news if you were not a follower of Jesus. But if you are, it should be radically different. This would actually be a sin. And so take a look at verse 2. He says this, For those of you that follow Jesus, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and you say, here's a good seat for you, but the poor man, you say, stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, let me kind of summarize what we've learned so far, and that's this. It's not saying, James is not saying, Jesus is not saying not to judge. What he's going to tell us, what he's explaining to us, is how we judge matters. How we judge matters. It matters to us. It matters to the people around us. It matters to everything because we all judge. And so let's take the example James gives us. Who's judging who here? We've got a church, right? And, and you've got two people that are walking into this church, and, and one of them is wearing a gold ring and a, a fine clothing, and the other one is poor and wearing filthy rags. And almost always, if you've ever heard a sermon about this passage, including the last sermon I probably gave on this passage, usually the way that this is applied is the difference between the rich and famous person and the homeless person. And, and I've probably preached it that way too, but as I was studying it this time, I realized this is actually, that's a gross oversimplification of what James is actually trying to teach us. What he's really teaching us is what a gold ring and a robe and what filthy clothes represents. It represents the person coming in's authority. 
It represents their pull. It represents the value that God has placed on them in the world. It represents their privilege. That's what it represents. And anybody that was reading this in the days of James and Jesus, they would have known this because there's all kinds of court-like language caught up in this passage. Court of law kind of stuff. Justice kind of stuff. And in the ancient world, and this is written not just in scripture, but this is written in other places as well. If you were to come before a fair judge, if that judge is fair, and you have a plaintiff and you have a defendant, and let's say that the plaintiff is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and the defendant is wearing rags, before the proceedings even get started, what the judge will do is the judge will say to the plaintiff, you have two options. Either you give the exact same outfit to the person who is in the defensive place, or you take off your clothes and you put on rags so that both of you look the same so that your appearance does not have an impact on the case. Because in ancient days, if you were poor, you were considered nothing. And so the case would be open and closed before it even starts just based on what you're wearing. And that's not unlike our court of law today. And my, my most, most of my experience that I've been in most, I say most of my experience that I've had in the court of law is going to make you wonder what other experiences you've had <laughs> in a court of law. And we can talk about that after the service. Um, you know, I'm, uh, most of my case or most of my involvement has been as a foster parent um, because that is a legal process. And there have been several times where as a foster parent, I have been called, have been subpoenaed to testify in a case that is deciding what is in the best interest of the children that God has placed in our home and in our care. And so uh, each time I was subpoenaed, I think every time it was always by the assistant district attorney. And so I would call and they would give me an overview of why they're inviting me into court to begin with. And the most important question that I think I had the first time this happened was this, what should I wear? <laughs> And you know what she told me? She said, don't worry about it. It's a court of law. Um, it's all based on facts. Don't worry about what you're wearing. That's not what's important. So do you think that I didn't worry about what I was wearing? I worried a lot about what I was wearing. Because I was coming in and speaking into a process that was going to make decisions for a child that I love. And so I'm going to think about all of the details, including what I'm wearing. And that's not just me. When I walked in, everybody was dressed up. The judge was dressed right in the row. But you've also got the attorneys that if it's a trial situation, they dress up even more than just the general day-to-day -day hearings. You've got everybody in the room who has a vested interest all dressing their best because they know that their only hope for a fair process of justice is if everybody is on the same level, right? That's why we have public defenders. If you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided for you because everyone deserves to be at the same level. And so I share all this because this is all kind of undergirding what's going on in our reading today as we talk about judgment. So we go back to James, and these people are fumbling to try to follow Jesus and you have to ask yourself, in the world of following Jesus, when you've got two people that come from different places,
choices in the balance of the world, how is the way of Jesus to balance the playing field? How does he do it? And there are some direct parallels to a story that Jesus tells known as the prodigal son. How many of you remember the story, the prodigal son? Very, very well-known story. Father has two sons. One of them told the father, I wish you were dead. He didn't say it like that. But he said, I wish you were dead because I want my inheritance. I want what's coming to me when you die. And so that's essentially what he says to this father. And the father's response was even crazier than the son. The father went and he took out money from his 401k and he wasn't even at retirement age yet. And so he had to pay the, the penalty and the stock market was down and all of this stuff. And so he just writes him a check and he says, go. And he lets the son go. And so you know the rest of the story, right? The son takes the money, he gets a college degree, he's very responsible with it. No. <laughs> he goes to a foreign land, he parties, he spends money on wild living. That's what it says, right? All of these things, prostitutes, all this stuff. And, and at the end of the day, he runs out of money, and it leaves him as a young Jewish man eating pig slop. If you know anything about the Jewish people and pigs, it's not a good place to be. And so he starts to think about the fact that if he was living at home, even as a servant, living in the barns at home, he would be better off than where he's living right now. And so he decides, I'm going to go back. And he's got this whole defense. He's going to tell his father all this stuff, hoping that his dad will welcome him, not as a son, but just to let him sleep in the barn so that he's not homeless and eating the slop from the pigs. And so he's got all of this played out in his head. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, you know the story. He got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around his son and he kissed his son. And the son began to go through the spiel and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, if you read the last part he had more to say and the father interrupts him because you listen to your father when your father speaks and this is what the father says the father says to his servants quick bearing the best robe and put it on him put a ring on his finger have you heard these things before right look at james he says put a ring on his finger a robe around him sandals on his feet bring the fatted calf and kill it let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again he was lost and now is found and so they began to celebrate Friends, in the courts of law, in the gospel, in the kingdom of Jesus, Jesus came to even the playing field by raising everybody up, not by pushing us down. And he does it at his expense. He didn't get the money back that the son squandered. He paid the price twice. What this means is that by welcoming him back into the, as a son, he again would receive an inheritance, which he does not deserve, but the father pays the price willingly because he loves him. And it's a beautiful story. It's the reason all of you raised your hand and you know the story, because the truth is we've all been the prodigal son, haven't we? We've all been the prodigal son. We've all been guilty of squandering blessings. We've all been guilty of disrespecting our parents. 
We've all been guilty of being unfaithful to those that we love. We've all done this. And so to think that there could be a father that would be watching for us while we are a long way off, that wouldn't just accept us back, but accept us back as part of the family, as a son again? Does it not blow your mind? And it should, right? This is why the story is so powerful, because deep down we know that we need to be forgiven and loved that way, don't we? And I would say that in our better moments, because we've been made in the likeness and image of God, we have a deep desire to forgive and love other people that way, don't we? But for us, it's really hard. It's a lot harder for us. And that's why the story isn't about us. It's about our Father in heaven. It's about how God loves us. And Jesus tells us the story to set the tone for the family of God. He tells the story to set the tone for the family of God so that when you walk into the family of God and the outpost of that family is the church, we need to know that no matter what we've done, where we've been, or where we're going, we're welcome. Always, all the time, with open arms, with a ring on your finger and a robe around your shoulders. Now, what does this have to do with James? I want you to have James in front of you so you see the parallel. What are these people doing? People are walking into the doors of the church and they are, they are honoring those that walk in the door already wearing rings and fine clothing and they are making those who are poor and wearing filthy clothing sit in the back or at their feet away from everyone else. And James is saying to these people that are trying to be Christians, that is the way the world works, but you know better, don't you? See, you know the way of Jesus. You've heard the prodigal son. You know you are the prodigal son. You remember Jesus saying, like, the way you treat the least of these. You remember all of these things, right? You remember what he taught us. And if you don't remember, I'm going to remind you. Verse 5, he says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If somebody walks into the church wearing rags, figuratively or literally, our response as Christians is to put on a robe and a ring. And the reason is because that's what God has done for us. And yet the hard truth is that left to our own natural tendencies, and we are all guilty of this, we will always favor those who are already wearing robes and rings over those who are not. If you don't believe me, just think for just a second. Is there any kind of person that if they walked through the doors of the church right now would make you uncomfortable? We all have that list. We all do this. I do it, you do it, we all do it. And judging that way automatically is not the problem that James is getting at. The problem that he's getting at, the problem that he's challenging is that when you walk into the doors of the church and when the church walks out the doors into the world and represents the name of Jesus in our politics and in our world, and in the way in which we speak to others and we write on social media, we should not live that way. 
We should be practicing the way of Jesus, the upside-down way. The things he says are valuable, are now valuable to us, no matter what the world thinks. Jesus becomes our new anchoring bias. We treat others the way that he has treated us. It should look different here. Verse 8, he says, If you really kept the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. James is reminding us what we already know, right? Nobody is perfect. Nobody is perfect. Nobody, not me, not you, not even the person wearing the ring and the robes. But here's the kicker, (laughs) and listen to this here. If you treat that person wearing the ring and the robes, the person of privilege, the person who's above everything else in the eyes of the world, if you treat them better than you treat the poor, what ends up happening is we end up judging ourselves based on the perfection that we think that the rich and powerful person that just walked in has achieved. And here's the truth, that person isn't perfect either. And you know that, right? We know that nobody is perfect, right? But James tells us this by fleshing it out, just how imperfect we are when telling us that if you've broken just one law, you've broken all of the laws. And he uses two really good examples. He uses adultery and he uses murder, not just for the actual act of adultery and murder, but because you remember what Jesus taught us about adultery and murder, don't you? That if you hate someone, you're murdering them. It's the same sin. That adultery is the same whether you commit the act or whether you commit adultery in your heart. It is just as destructive. And if you don't believe Jesus, ask the girl over here on the right. (laughs) We're all guilty. We're all broken. This book that I've just started to read this week. Uh, this author in the introduction quotes another author. Her name's Anne Lamott. She said this, everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared. Even the people who seem to have it more or less together. They are much more like you than you would believe. And so if you honor the person who looks like they have it all together as if they really do, what you will ultimately do is you will go home and you will look in the mirror and you will be reminded that you don't have it all together. And that judgment that you judge others by will condemn yourself. And as your pastor and as your brother and as your friend, Let me tell you, Jesus did not come to condemn you. He came to save you. He came to save you. We're all wearing filthy clothes. In the kingdom of God, all of us are poor. None of us have what it takes. None of us are rich enough. None of us are smart enough. None of us are good enough. And yet, is that not actually the gift? 
to look around and know that you're not unlike everybody else, that we are united as one and that we are all broken. And that is precisely why Jesus came to put a ring and a robe on everyone. You don't have to be enough because Jesus is enough. You don't have to be enough because Jesus is enough. And he came to be enough for you too. And so if there is one place left on this divided planet Earth where favoritism should not exist, where it shouldn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, if you're married or single, if you're divorced or gay, if you're a natural-born citizen or a refugee or an illegal immigrant, if you're a man or a woman, if you're a child or an adult, if you are black, brown, or white, if you're a business owner or living on welfare, if there is one place left where these distinctions should begin to dissolve immediately when you walk through the door, it should be the church. And immediately when I say that, I know that there is at least one person that wants to say to me, but Tom, what about sin? This does not ignore sin. But in the context of God's church, we apply God's response to sin, and that is freedom from it, not through judgment, but through mercy. And that's why James ends this passage by saying this, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so would you join me right now as we put these words into prayer? Lord Jesus, it has been 2,000 years since these words were written, and I am afraid that your church does not look much different today than it did back then. The dividing lines might look different, but the sin of favoritism is alive and well, and so I pray would you forgive all of us for the moments that we have honored some at the expense of others and ultimately at the expense of ourselves? Because the longer that we play that game, the longer that our witness to the world and to our own souls is one of condemnation, not freedom. Jesus, we all need mercy. And so may we walk into the doors of the church, be it literal or figuratively, every Sunday. And may we begin with an awareness of our own need for grace and forgiveness and love. That we are all the prodigal son and that you are our good father who runs to us while we are still a long way off. And God, when we see those who are different from us, those who we and the world would judge as less than, especially those that too many Christians have judged as less than, may in this place, 
We see our role in the small corner of God's kingdom to be an outpost that welcomes them, that runs to them, that says, God loves you, and so do I. We are all the same here. I know it won't always feel that way, but God, I pray that it will be more true tomorrow than it is right now, and may that begin with me. It is in Jesus' name we pray.